Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome back to the tank, John Ruffalo, to cover the headlines making news in and around the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Also, as you can probably tell, we are changing the format of the podcast a little to be a bit more focused on the things people care about that are happening in the tech and venture capital world. We are still planning on having guest interviews on the show, but we feel like people are really enjoying these news rundown segments, and we want to give you, the audience, a bit more insight into how I see the world along with our guests. So, with all that being said, we are excited to try out this new format, and we hope you will continue to subscribe and support the show by sharing the podcast with your networks and friends. But before we get started today, as our listeners probably know by now, the team at Ripple is always focused on helping our founders and portfolio companies find the best partners to work with within the tech and venture capital ecosystem. And that is why we are so excited to announce our partnership with the incredible team at Tories LLP. When it comes to legal support and advice, the team at Tories is the best in class. Tories is a storied Canadian law firm with offices in Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Halifax, and New York City. And Tories has been around since its founding in 1941. They have always worked closely with players across the emerging startup ecosystem in all aspects of the creation, acquisition, and commercialization of businesses. They help founders determine when and how much to fundraise, how to achieve the right economic structure, how to think about board and control issues, and how to successfully navigate different stages of growth. They are also advisors to VC funds, strategic investors, private equity funds, and other institutional investors on fund formation and shareholder arrangements to buyouts and other exits. In fact, Tories recently acted as counsel to Mavericks Private Equity on the transformative 260 million MyoVision Technologies growth funding round with an advisory team that included Danny Asif, Konata Lake, and Max Schwartz label on that investment. So whether you are negotiating a new business arrangement or developing a new service offering, Tories helps clients seize new opportunities and build creative market-leading business models in this fast-paced world we live in every day. So visit Tories.com to learn more. Well, John, welcome back to the tank. We had Mark McQueen fill the seat in for a couple times, and he did a great job. Uh, Tough yeah, I have to say, <laughs> yeah, uh, get a little bit of the political controversy in here from Mark's side, but always great to have you back. You know, wanted to kick things off with some pretty big news that was, you know, foreshadowed in the media for several months, which was the fundraising for uh, AI startup Cohere, valued at two point one billion, two hundred seventy million dollars Series C round. Led by Inovia, uh, with participation from Nvidia, Oracle, Salesforce, Tomvest, Index—you know—a bunch of corporates. Obviously, you know, with all the rush into AI, you know, Cohere, with only 180 employees, has raised 445 million of capital, which, even by generative AI standards, is still quite high. You know, when compared to OpenAI and maybe Anthropic, it's not that big, but it's similar. What are your thoughts here? Uh, I'd love to understand, like, how you think capital is going to be returned, maybe in this industry, and you know how it's going to be deployed, and, and maybe even generate some actual enterprise value for these businesses. So I, I think that if you divide AI companies into two very broad categories, one, you know, call it the infrastructure LLM category, which is getting the most hype currently, and then the application layer that sits up top, I think there's going to be thousands of great application layer companies where at the, the front end of that. As it relates to the infrastructure layer, you know, the open AIs, et cetera, it's proving out likely to be that, you know, especially given the monstrous compute costs, it's going to be a race for, you know, and I, I use always the rule of three. And 
let's just pretend for the moment you've got two in place being, you know, open AI slash Microsoft and you have Bard slash Google, then it's the third. The thing that I really like about Cohere strategy is that they're trying not to be the one that's associated with a large corporate. There is a serious concern about will this provide the necessary Switzerland of neutrality of data? And I think Cohere is very smartly positioning themselves as the independent one, notwithstanding that some of the investors being Oracle, you know, in particular has sort of stated that's going to be their, their, their quasi engine. But I think Cohere has been smartly distancing themselves saying, yeah, no, it's great. You're a great partner, but you're just a distribution channel. It doesn't mean that we're wedded together. So we'll, we'll see where their space goes, but it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time to get this to the levels that we expect. You know, maybe explain to our audience the um, risk you take when you bring on strategics like this into a financing round. Everyone thinks it's a huge win, 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 but sometimes it's actually not always that case. And when NVIDIA, Oracle, Salesforce, there's a lot of corporates here. I'll just give you the general response. And this is the general advice that I give the folks. Never get in a strategic investor before your Series C. Why is that? Because by the time you're Series C, you're, you're sort of big enough to influence your own path forward. When it comes to early, a couple of things happen. Number one, there might be an over-influence to satisfy the needs of that particular corporate. But more importantly, it actually potentially decreases your, your exit value because there is an implicit right of first refusal because they have access to your information. So the exception to the rule that I just stated if in a say a series A you do have you do want to get a strategic in there, you better get multiple ones. You know, some say two. I actually prefer three. Then none of them are in control. Yeah, I totally agree. For companies in our portfolio that have investors like Google or Amazon, we've always said keep their allocation small, keep the commercial relationships tight. And keep the information close to your chest because you never know when they actually might pull on that thread a little too hard and it blocks other people from participating. You know, the interesting thing about this is Salesforce, you know, this week just announced their AI platform starting at 360000 a year. You know, Benioff had a big press release and a big, uh, you know, uh, town hall where he had the, you know, innovation leader from Gucci talk about the suits he's making using AI. What do you think is happening here? Because in our portfolio, in our team, we've seen probably about 10 to 20 sales automation AI startups pop up in the last couple of weeks. I'm not joking you. Everyone is trying to write emails using OpenAI, de- uh, deploy AI into customer support, all those things. And now Salesforce comes out with this. What are your thoughts here? You know, it's funny. Salesforce and Benioff have never, ever been accused of creating vaporware. So this is a shock to me. I know, but it says like in the headline, it uh, says they're creating AI. It's a, It's ridiculous. Yeah. And you see the stock price goes up and everybody's, you know, giving themselves a pat on the back and they've done absolutely nothing. Uh, Oracle's done the exact same thing as well. Right. So if investors buy that, you know what? Investors deserve what they get by following, you know, nonsense. You might as well follow press releases. But, you know, this reminds me, Matt, I can't remember the exact year, but it might have been around 2010, 2011. When Jeffrey Hinton's name became far more popularized, there was a whole spate of startups 
that changed their extension from .com to .ai, it's feeling like this deja vu all over again. Totally. Yeah. So that begs the question then, do you want to be first on this train or do you want to be like kind of third in, you know, like kind of waiting for the dust to settle, see where all the bodies end up getting, you know, uncovered and then going in to big, big your bet. It depends where you play. Now, if you're at that infrastructure layer, layer, that first mover advantage might actually be relevant because look at the publicity that open AI is getting. People are almost calling them the de facto standard. And that makes it hard for Bard and Cohere to deal with that. But at the application layer, and this is where, you know, with Salesforce and they're playing on top of, they're building, they want to build private enterprise versions, uh, you know, for all of their various customers. This is the app layer. This is not a winner take all up top on that layer. So, you know what, get it right. Watch where the direction goes. But I think some people can't help themselves by being perceived as being at the leading edge of technology. I think that's, yeah, exactly. That's the promise they've made to their investors and their shareholders that they're going to be on the leading edge and they need to take those risks. And if there's someone that has to, you know, end up falling on the sword, at least they say, well, at least we took the risk while everyone waited for everyone else to make the bet. Just imagine the boardroom discussion. Hey guys, what's your AI strategy? We don't have one. Hey guys, Let's create one now so that we could appease, so that we make people think that we know what we're doing at this point. Well, it sounds like Mark Benioff is covering his ass on two sides because he's making investments in Cohere and Anthropic, and he's also announcing his own AI application. So maybe he's covering himself on both sides. Exactly. And that goes to your point. Be very, very careful when folks do that. Uh-huh. But speaking of someone who was probably uh, more careful than others getting into a space too early was Toby, your friend at Shopify, uh, but having to retrench from the uh, logistics space. So last month, Shopify announced the sale of its delivery operations, which was a bit of an abrupt reversal of strategy to compete with Amazon after sinking billions of dollars into buying their way into uh, you know the fulfillment startup Deliver, uh, Six River Systems in the warehouse management space. Uh, and then now offloading the business to Flexport. You know, what are your thoughts here and what sort of lessons can founders take from these experiences of maybe trying to buy your way into a market without really understanding the guts of what happens to be successful? When the acquisition had occurred, to be completely honest, it it baffled me. I love uh, Shopify's strategy and being the anti-Amazon. And I do think with Amazon's strategy as, you know, We'll do everything for you. Oh, and by the way, you won't make any money either. Is very, you know, anti-entrepreneurial. And I loved Shopify's. We will create the ecosystem approach, best of breed, plug it in, and we'll take a little toll charge from offering them. I thought that that was a phenomenal superior strategy. And they sort of got caught up into this Amazon same day delivery prime and I, I think it spooked them. So what's the learning lesson? And 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 Toby is a spectacular strategist, but it did make me wonder what was it that spooked them to go off strategy. What this says is stay to your truth. Maybe in short term times, you know, you see the market moving and you start to really doubt your strategy. Of course, you might create some optionality. 
So what if they were wrong? Maybe, you know, take a few venture bets along the way just in case. But the problem was they committed this strategy before they really had the proof point whether it was a good strategy. And I think finally get rid of it, move it off to a great firm like Flexport and get back to your core uh, thesis. I think, yeah, it was a bit of the tail wagging the dog where your stock is up huge, you're making all-time highs, your market cap is bigger than the Royal Bank of Canada's, right. and investors are looking at you and say, well, what, what do you have next up your sleeve? I say, wait till you see this. Right. And I want something big. Yeah, I want something big. And the market's still asking for that. That's not Toby's fault. He gave into that, which a lot of people would have. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's hard to to throw shade because there were acquisitions done in the last bull market where Mark Zuckerberg didn't listen to investors and he bought a company called Instagram or he bought WhatsApp. You know, those transformative acquisitions could end up becoming game changers for your business. So I don't blame him for trying to compete with Amazon and trying to buy and acquire his way into building a logistics and delivery business. It's just so fucking hard compared to building software. Yeah. And in Zuckerberg's case, if you recall, what was happening, it was that he was getting afraid that both WhatsApp and Instagram was uh, was being viewed by the very younger demographic. So he saw the writing on the wall of the aging of Facebook. Now, I actually disagreed with that acquisition. So it just goes to show uh, how much I know. But in Shopify's case, it wasn't a reaffirmation of their strategy. It was actually counter to the previous stated strategy. So so th- that's how I reconcile the two of those. Yeah. Well, speaking of acquisitions, there was a big acquisition announced in the sort of fintech data uh, space where uh, NASDAQ was buying software firm Adenza from Tomo Bravo for over $10 billion. You know, who cares what the ARR multiple is, even though people were saying, you know, over 30, 35 or something like that. That is not the headline. The headline is that they bought this company only a couple of years ago for, I think, just about $5 billion, and they're going to pocket over $3 billion and own 15% of the NASDAQ. You know, what are your uh, thoughts here about how people need to understand how when you're an EBITDA positive business and you're a software business with EBITDA margins of like almost 50%, anyone will buy your company? Again, I don't know enough about the future direction of NASDAQ, but somebody in there has made a bet the farm strategy. And, you know, what it tells me is, dudes, you guys don't really know where you're going. So you're betting it all on red. And by the way, the market reacted extremely negatively. Now, there was one tiny silver lining in that it wasn't an all cash deal, but they are borrowing a fit. I, I, I heard that they're borrowing just enough to wipe out the entire EBITDA. And by the way, interest rates are going to rise again, probably in the United States. So, you know, hang on to your shorts, but somebody's bet big. And again, I don't know enough of the acquired business, but good on Tama Bravo. That's a huge win in this market. I That actually stunned me. Yeah, it did. And it was obviously, you know, uh, not well received at the initial part by the market down 12%. But I think it goes to show you that even businesses today that are, you know, decent businesses, now NASDAQ, 70% of their business comes from the data side, from the financial services side. And people are understanding that these financial services or services businesses are much better than the transactional businesses. And we're seeing that across the fintech space. So I think for a lot of our listeners out there who are maybe thinking, oh, I'll go build a marketplace or some transaction business, 
those aren't valued like they used to be in this market. And people want to have repeatable sticky revenue. And that's why they paid up for something like this. You know, speaking of fundraising, though, we did see TCV, uh, Technology uh, Crossover Ventures, miss on their $5.5 billion fundraising goal. Uh, similar to what we saw with other firms like Tiger trying to raise five and a half billion for their 12th flagship fund and cutting it down almost 75% to be 1.4 billion. What are your thoughts here? Are people just kind of coming back to the new normal of like staying in line with where they should have been raising before all these funds went up 5X in size? Uh, and Or you think the LPs are just telling them, sorry, that's not the fund we agreed to invest in last time? These mega funds that, first of all, like the 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 allocations to the class are, you know, have dropped down considerably. And with the size of these funds, if you want to maintain allocations in these funds, you're going to have to put a monstrous check, which may, you know, for a lot of the pension funds, it might be moving from 20 names of funds to two or three, and you're massively increasing the risk. I think that you're going to see, you You heard Insight is dropping their size, and so was it was a third firm that just announced a drop in their expectation. I forget who it was. And you're absolutely right. You know what I would do? I'd be going to the 20, not necessarily 19, but 2017 vintage trend line and see where it is. And I think that they raised such massive funds in 2019 and 2020, you know, up to 2021, that everybody seems to think that you always got to beat the previous fund without taking a step back and saying, wait a minute here. There's no IPOs. Exit values are way, way down. What sort of total proceeds do you need to generate in order to make the requisite return? And the math for a lot of these folks just absolutely doesn't work. No, it does not work. And I think also people are waking up that it's just really freaking hard to deploy that much capital into this asset class and also get a healthy return on it. You know, we're just not going to see that amount of money used wisely. You know, look at Andreessen. They've had to merge some of their consumer and fintech teams, you know, Sequoia pulling back from China and India, mostly political reasons, but also just unable to get their capital out of those markets sometimes is hard. And I think people are waking up to how hard it is to fucking make money in this business. Yeah. And, and Matt, you know, what's that it's sort of a silver lining, but it's a silver lining. If you're a Canadian fund, you know, it's part of the Sequoia story and, and it's getting all mixed up into geopolitics, but it's very, very real. 60% of all venture and growth capital funded in China is a source from American dollars. They're going to pull that out. That is a that is anywhere on those estimates about forty billion dollars annually of capital that's moving back, and it's not going to go into Europe because Europe is going through a shitstorm right now. So where is it going to go? North America. So if you are a Canadian firm, maybe just maybe that source of capital might be from U.S. sources. I like that. I like that as a positive note to end on and a good silver lining for our Canadian founders out there. So thanks so much for joining us back in the tank today, John. All right. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcast or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot and hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. 
Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 